Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Lawrence Miroff, adjunct clinical professor of radiology at the University of South Florida. He has continuously held major leadership roles within the American College of Radiology for the past 42 years, including within the Council, Board of Chancellors, and the boards of the Neiman Policy Institute and the Radiology Leadership Institute. He served as president of his 45-member radiology practice, president of seven additional professional imaging organizations, including the American College of Nuclear Physicians and Educational Symposia, Inc., and was chairman of the Board of Radiologics when it became a publicly traded company. A highly sought-after professional practice consultant, Dr. Miroff has advised over 100 radiology groups on practice management and provided mentorship and guidance to countless radiology leaders. Our goal in creating the Taking the Lead podcast is to support your leadership journey. And with that in mind, I'd like to tell you about a new sponsor, the Eisenberg School of Management Graduate Programs at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Eisenberg Graduate Business Programs prepare you to advance your career on your terms, and their online and on-campus degrees are tailored to your schedule and timetable. Learn more at eisenberg.umass.edu slash follow your drive. Larry, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've been looking forward to chatting with you. As have I. Now, you were born in Philadelphia. What was life like for you growing up there? Well, life was very, very interesting. My grandparents had a nursing home, and the first two years of my life, I actually spent a lot of time in their nursing home. And then my parents, when I was two years old, opened a nursing home right on Drexel Fraternity Row in Philadelphia. Uh, My mom was a general practitioner and my dad was a pharmacist. And I spent the next 10 years of my life really around patients. And it was almost a foregone conclusion that I would go into medicine. Philadelphia was a different city than it is now. It didn't have the diversity of restaurants. I grew up and spent most of my time in a very diverse neighborhood uh, outside of the Drexel Fraternity Row. The neighborhood was very diverse, and I had friends of of different races, of different religions. It was uh, a very unusual, I think, uh, upbringing at my stage or, or for my age. Yeah, it's, it, so, it sounds like it. you spent a lot of time in the nursing home, which would suggest to me that, you know, you were spending a lot of time with elderly folks. Is, is that right? I spent a lot of time with elderly folks, although I certainly felt that uh, if when I became elderly, which I guess I am now, uh, I would uh, just as soon not be in a nursing home. But all in all, I, I uh, spent a lot of time with patients. My mom, uh, when she was making her rounds, would take me around 
So I had a very early exposure to medicine. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really certainly a unique upbringing and experience. Can I assume that you got to do normal kid activities outside of helping out at the nursing home too? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was, a, again, a different era. My parents probably now would uh, be locked up by social services, but uh, every morning I walked seven blocks to a trolley car to get on a trolley car to go to uh, grade school and walked through some pretty um, sketchy areas. I played in the streets when I came back from the school. Basically, we played stickball and basketball, and we had some rotations where we had boxing matches in, in the streets. It, it was a totally different era then than it is now. Yeah. Now, when you think back to your time as a, as a child growing up and spending time in the nursing home, are there any particular interactions or patients that have stuck with you through the years? Well, I think the most memorable and probably the most embarrassing uh, situation is uh, I was two and a half, three years old maybe, and I was walking around in a bathrobe. My grandfather, when he came, emigrated to this country, opened a bathrobe factory, and a little elderly nursing home resident said, are you a little boy or a little girl? And she picked up my bathrobe and said, ah, a little boy. So that probably uh, is something that never leaves one's memory. Certainly not. I mean, the fact that it's still with you from the age of, of two or three certainly is a strong indication of the impact it had. Wow. <laughs> and so can I assume that, you know, when you reached the age to have your first job that you were actually working in the nursing home as well? Well, actually, uh, when I truly had the age to, to have my first job, my parents, again, uh, even though I, we were middle to upper middle class uh, by income, I always worked. And when I was 12, I printed business cards for babysitting, snow shoveling, lawn mowing. And that year and the next year, I spent doing those activities. Then I worked for the township as a janitor for a couple of years and worked tarring roads. So I've been working um, in the real sense from the time I was 12, and before then, I was helping out in the nursing home. Yeah, it's interesting, the printing of, of cards for these odd jobs uh, sort of suggests an entrepreneurial bent, but then working towering roads is uh, a little bit more of working for the man. How, how did you view that balance in those days? Well, working for the man certainly paid a lot more, and uh, it was a lot a steadier an income for a summer job than uh, mowing lawns. But, you know, hard work, I think, instilled in me uh, a sense of, of what it takes to earn money and uh, the work necessary to do a job well. Any brothers and sisters? 
I have a brother and he just retired. He's six years younger. He's a, was a general practitioner in the Philadelphia area and just retired and moved out to L.A. to be with his only daughter and her young child. So one one brother. Got it. So medicine is really fundamental in your family. Do you recall your first experience as a leader during your time growing up? Did you ever take on any leadership roles in school? Yeah, I think my first leadership role was in the sixth grade. I was captain of the safety patrol. And uh, again, I don't know what motivated me because I love sports. I love participating in sports and the alternative to being captain of the safety patrol, which was a, um, for a sixth grader, a difficult job, not as much fun as playing sports. The alternative was joining a club, uh, a group of uh, kids that played sports. So uh, I chose leadership over the sports in the sixth grade, although I played sports in junior high school and high school. Terrific. And no need for a lead apron at that stage. No need for a lead apron. Although probably I'm one of the few people on your interview list who has fluoroscoped with red goggles and uh, also who has performed the pneumoencephalogram uh, in his varied career. Well, let's, let's see if we can unpack that in a little bit. Let's move forward gradually, though, and maybe explore a little bit about your education, starting with college. You went to Dartmouth. What did you study there? Interestingly enough, I felt that I would be more rounded if I did not major in science. I took all the prerequisite science courses, obviously, but I majored in sociology, and I uh, specifically focused on propaganda and public opinion and things that would probably be construed as marketing or changing the way people thought. Well, that's that's really interesting. I'm assuming that upon entering college, you had an inkling that you wanted to practice medicine. Well, I didn't know what I wanted to practice. Uh, my parents obviously thought that medicine was an outstanding career, but I... Uh, thought very seriously about the law. And in fact, later after residency, I had an opportunity to, to go to law school on uh, a Picker Foundation, well, what would have been a Picker Foundation grant had I done it, but things just didn't work out that way. But I, I was interested in medicine, but also interested in a lot of other things. Yeah, so your de- your decision to study sociology and you know garnering this sort of market approach to the world w- was not a sort of uh, carefully laid out plan for the future, but really just what interested you at the time. Yeah, right. But but public opinion, propaganda, shaping thought still is a strong interest of mine, and uh, I'm glad that I had the opportunity to get into that area when I did. Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting counterpoint to studying the sciences, which most people who go into medicine do. As we 
begin to practice medicine, we increasingly appreciate that there's a lot more to treating a person than the biology of their disease. Excellent. And so at some point amongst this study of propaganda and sociology, you decided that you were going to go to medical school and you uh, enrolled at Harvard. How did you like Stanford of the East? I I guess you're right in that uh, characterization. Everybody thinks that they are the best in terms of educational opportunities. But actually, I I, uh, first went to Dartmouth Medical School. One of the reasons I went to Dartmouth College over other options was they had the 3-2 program. And even though I came from a rural high school where half the kids didn't go to college, I let myself be seduced by the recruitment spiel that uh, maybe you will be lucky enough to get into medical school after your third year of college, which indeed I was lucky enough. And therefore, my senior year of college was also my first year of medical school. Dartmouth only had two years of medical school at that time. And of the 48 of us, 36 went to Harvard. And the ones that didn't, didn't want to go there. They went to other places, uh, Columbia, McGill, Cornell, a lot of other places. So all in all, it was a great two years because the professors all knew you. It was a, uh, a wonderful setting, just having 48 in each class. And then Harvard certainly had the hospital capacity to absorb those students. And it worked out very well. In fact, I did better at Harvard Medical School than I did at Dartmouth, although did reasonably well at Dartmouth, too. Yeah, that's a really interesting arrangement. So at at Harvard, you were there for just two years then and did your clinical years? My two clinical years. Yeah. All right. I had my internship uh, on the Harvard Surgical Service of Boston City Hospital. Got it. And and, uh, during that time, when did you get the inkling that radiology was your future? The government made me a radiologist by accident. I trained during the Vietnam War, and I had no objection to going, but I wanted to go trained. And from the time I can remember, I always wanted to be a pelvic cancer surgeon. And I had done some cancer research at Harvard with Judah Folkman, and it was pretty innovative stuff that he was doing. But in any case, I applied for the Bury Plan in OB, and I had already secured residency at the Boston Lying Inn, and at that time they took people every two months, so I had the coveted, for want of a better word, July start, and was all set to be a pelvic cancer surgeon, but I didn't get the bury plan in any of the three armed services. Because of the research I had been doing, One of the fellows that was an intern at the Mass General when I had my student rotation uh, said, you ought to come down to the Bureau of Radiological Health. At that time, it was the National Center for Radiological Health. You can do your research there. We really like to have you join us. 
And I said, radiology? I mean, who wants to do that? I, I want to be a pelvic cancer surgeon. And he said, well, you know, a lab is a lab. What does it matter? So I went down, but there was a fair amount of exposure opportunities, at least, to radiology. And in fact, one of the people, one of the guys in my building was in nuclear medicine at the NIH, and he kept inviting me to see what he was doing. Nuclear medicine really intrigued me. So literally at the last minute, I applied for radiology residencies. At that time, matching was in its infancy. Most programs had both match opportunities and slots that they can give you. And I accepted a slot at Moffitt, uh, UCAL San Francisco, and this same guy who got me down to the Bureau of Radiological Health was now at Columbia, and he said, oh, you've got to come to Columbia, it's the best. Well, my wife said, if you don't go to the best, you'll always wonder. So I turned down the Moffitt slot, I went to Columbia. And of course, by the time I got there, he said, oh, this guy left and this one is leaving. And But it was, it worked out phenomenally well for me. And, uh, you know, all in all, I couldn't have asked for a better opportunity. That's, that's fantastic. Could, could you uh, maybe explain for our listeners who are not familiar with the Barry plan, what, what is that or was that? Well, my plan uh, was a residency deferment, and it was granted based on a lottery. I would imagine if you had political connections, you could have gotten accepted. But basically, it said that uh, we will defer your going into the service until after your residency. But at that point, you will be obligated for your two years. I had very good recommendations. I've had had very good grades at both Harvard and Dartmouth, but I wasn't uh, selected. Yeah, but, but you, as you say, you, you spent your two years with the United States Public Health Service in the Bureau of Radiological Health. I mean, what was your experience like doing that? It sounds like you were already involved in some research. Maybe, you know, tell us what that was about. But what was the day-to-day like contributing in the United States Public Health Service back then? Well, at at the Bureau of Radiological Health, uh, shortly after I got there, maybe I was bad luck, but they then uh, condensed it. It went from a national center to a Bureau of Radiologic Health, but the labs were the same. Interestingly enough, this fellow who was a couple of years ahead of me went into radiology. Barry Pressman was able to join me at the Bureau of Radiological Health. So we had a very uh, bright group of individuals there. My only publication out of that uh, happened not to be on any of the research that I was brought down to do, but on, a, on an engineering paper called Prolongation of Life in, a micro, in an Ultrasound Field. Basically, we showed that that a lot of the microwave, it was microwave, not ultrasound, but most of the effects, if not all of the detrimental effects of microwaves were heat related. So you could 
keep a rat, for example, alive almost indefinitely by just cooling him down while he was in this field. Anyhow, that was my first opportunity to publish a paper. And then when I went to Columbia, I was able to publish also, but uh, nowhere near as many papers as some of the residents that you and I assess when we're looking at RLI scholarship candidates. My gosh, those residents are phenomenal. So true. So it sounds, though, like this experience was really somewhat fluid and research-based. You weren't in a production environment. You weren't really expecting to, like, you know, dig holes or do any kind of work that, you know, you would normally think about national service in the setting of a national draft. Right. This was all laboratory-based, but a very low-key type of environment. Very low-key. Yeah. And obviously very influential for you. So, so you mentioned you went to Columbia and you finished your residency essentially at a time that was just before the introduction of CT and certainly before the introduction of MR. What was radiology training like in those days? Maybe kind of give us a window into you know, how it was different from training today. Well, I think it was much different than training today. Obviously, everything was film-based. That's a one major difference. In my chief residency year, my senior year of residency, the group from Hammersmith came to the Neurologic Institute in New York and showed us these wonderful 64 by 64 images of of the brain. And everybody thought that was miraculous. I wonder how it could ever be improved upon. And MR was not even in existence at that time. Ultrasound, I I remember Don King, who was the ultrasound instructor, came running into a noon conference one time and said, I've got this phenomenal image. And Walter Burden, who was pediatric radiologist, a very quick wit, when Don King says, what do you think? Walter said, I think there's a low pressure area from Matasquan to Cape May because the image was very crude at best. Again, nowhere near the images that we enjoy. So we, we were taught by, uh, I think, uh, some giants in radiology, Frida Feldman and Bone, Bill Seaman, the chair and GI. But I think that what was more remarkable was the fact that I had people in my residency class and also junior attendings who later went on to, I won't say bigger and better things, but for want of an alternative description, bigger and better things. Bill Casarella, who had a distinguished career at Emory, uh, was our junior attending in angiography. Bruce McLennan, who has had an outstanding career in, in GU radiology, was the junior attending in, in GU. Quencer, Bob Quencer, who was chair at Miami forever and a neurogiant in his own right, was third-year resident when I was a first-year resident. I already talked about my medical school roommate, Barry Pressman, who was a president of the college and a gold medalist, and Richard Taxon, who has held many offices or positions in the college. All these people were in the 
the same little group, and it was a very stimulating group of people. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, what a privilege to um, work with uh, such a talented group. That, that's fantastic. I'm sure that at no moment in time did you miss the notion of having gone to San Francisco to train. No, and, and interestingly enough, I think the person that took that slot was Faye Lang, who herself is a giant in ultrasound. They probably got a far better deal than Columbia got with me. So all in all, it worked out well for everybody. Now, I see that you were chair of the American Association of Academic Chief Residents in Radiology, AQCR Squared, in 72-73. Right. What, what led you to seek that leadership position? You know, I didn't seek it. It was pretty much the way the RSNA is today and the way the college used to be, and that is the people that were there before picked the people that followed them. And I was very fortunate. Our program sent the chief resident in waiting, in other words, the year before your chief residency, to the AQ meeting, and there were probably a dozen such people, and I I was fortunate enough to be selected, and it was a super experience. Uh, We had Marty Lipton and Herb Abrams as our two teachers, and I will not forget Herb Abrams was in the process of recruiting, you know, I was the chair of of the AQCR Square, and he said, oh, you've got to come to Harvard uh, He said, uh, there are people that are, you know, walking the hallways that could be professors elsewhere. And we don't promote people the same way that other people. I'm thinking, this guy is recruiting me and telling me that, you know, you can walk the halls for the rest of your life and never get anywhere. But it was a fun teaching experience. And again, the group that was there, those chief residents were very, very intellectually stimulating. Yeah, I mean, what a, what a great opportunity early in your career. And I mean, you, you mentioned that you were lucky, but I'm sure luck really only had a small amount to do with it. Clearly, you were distinguishing yourself at that point as somebody to lead radiologists. Well, you're kind. You know, what do they say that uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity? So. There you go. Beautiful. So you spent a year after residency as an instructor at Columbia Nuclear Medicine. Was that akin to like doing fellowship training or were you a junior faculty role at that point? Well, as I said, Columbia presented some unique opportunities to me. Dr. Seaman, the chair, when I applied, said, I see by your application that you have an interest in nuclear medicine. And... During the, my chief residency year, the head of nuclear medicine, Phil Johnson, developed a medical issue that kept him out for, I guess, six months or so. And Dr. Seaman called me into the office and said, would you consider, instead of finishing your residency with the normal slots, joining the staff, I mean, we'll still pay you as a resident. In fact, uh, I was an NIH fellow, which meant I made $5,000 less than the residents, but I did get to go to one meeting a year. But would you want to do that? And uh, 
I said, sure. So really, I became a junior faculty member and one of the only faculty members in nuclear medicine while I was still a resident. I ended up spending a lot of my time teaching other residents while I still was a resident. So after 11 years of honing an Ivy League vibe, you made your way to Tampa, Florida. That that seems like quite a pivot, or was that your plan all along? Uh, I wish I could say I had a plan at that time. I was happy at uh, Columbia, but my wife was, I guess, about six months pregnant, and she didn't want to bring up a child in New York. And a friend of mine, who the guy who had been head of the nuclear medicine at the NIH, the fellow that introduced me to to uh, nuclear medicine, ended up also at, at Moffitt. And he said he was reading JAMA, and I don't know of any resident who reads JAMA, but I guess some do. And he said there's this advertisement for a nuclear radiologist, and it's in Tampa, Florida. And I said, Tampa? I knew about Miami area and Fort Lauderdale, and I knew there was the rest of a state, but I knew nothing about it. So he said, why don't you send your CV down? Can't hurt. So I sent my CD, a CV down on a Monday. On a Wednesday, they called and said, can you and your wife come down to Tampa this Friday, spend the weekend with us. Well, it was October, and it was still kind of dingy in New York, and they were very smart because they flew my wife down with me, and October in Florida is beautiful. Nobody tells you about heat or humidity or palmetto bugs or anything else. It's just gorgeous, and they took me around to the facilities and showed me where they wanted me to work. And it was a no-brainer. Now, when I went back to Columbia, before I accepted, I spoke to the chair, Dr. Seaman. He said, well, uh, let me check. And he checked and he, what his sources told him, the group was an excellent one. But the head of nuclear medicine, Dr. Phil Johnson, took me aside and said, you know, you have a promising academic career. Uh, If you take this job, you'll never be heard from again. And I think he was trying to be kind and honest. That was his view, because just like or almost as much as the people at Mass General think that the sun rises and sets on that on Fruit Street, The faculty at Columbia thought that uh, if you didn't stay there, there was something horribly wrong with you. So it was it sober. It was very sobering for me, but I still decided to take the job in Tampa, and it professionally was the smartest thing that I ever did. Yeah, I mean, yeah, taking that leap is really remarkable, especially the advice you received, and of course, how silly to think that you would never be heard from again. When you say it was, you know, the greatest decision you've, you've made, you know, help us understand that. I mean, after 
the perspective that the years have provided looking back, what would you characterize as the outcome of that decision that just made it ideal from your perspective? Well, it was ideal from many perspectives. First of all, the hospital was gracious enough to provide equipment and a computer system that was better than the one that I was used to working with at Columbia. So I had equipment even in a small community hospital that was better than in my academic center. The second thing that made it very exciting was the fact that since we were the smaller of the three hospitals, the smallest of the three hospitals, we were turned down initially for a CT scanner. At that time, there were certificates of need in Florida, and we did not qualify. And I had the opportunity to then work to get us qualified and was able to get the first body scanner at our facility, and the first body scanner in the area. It was very interesting. It took two and a half minutes to rotate around the patient and generated two slides, uh, two slices. But boy, I thought that was terrific. And so I got involved in CT early on because I was willing to serve on the countywide health planning board. And then similarly, I got involved in MR the same way. So all in all, I was able to get early exposure to CT and MR that I otherwise would not have had in a different setting. Yeah, yeah, fantastic and certainly very fortuitous and a real interesting uh, story of the pivot from academics to private practice. Now, now during these years, uh, and it was you were serving as director of nuclear medicine for 20 years at University Community Hospital, and you did stints as director of CT and MR as, as well, and clinical faculty appointments at the University of South Florida, I see. During these years, you were also very active in leadership, both within your practice on committees and as president, within your hospital on medical staff committees. And then with a bunch of professional societies, and before we get into that latter set of activities, help us understand what led you to volunteer for so many leadership roles. Well, as I said, uh, when it came to the safety patrol in sixth grade, uh, I always had a, uh, a desire to serve for want of, again, a better word. And I was willing to do the work, to do the tasks that were assigned, to volunteer uh, for other tasks that perhaps were not assigned but not thought about. So all in all, private practice gave me that opportunity, but only if I did it on my own time. For example, I um, spent a little over 20 years as an examiner uh, for the American, guest examiner for the American Board of Radiology, but I, that week was vacation. And similarly, Board of Chancellors of the ACR or the activities that I had with national and regional 
and state societies all came out of uh, vacation time. Although, to be fair, the vacation time was very generous. So the private practice group permitted me the opportunity, but again, did not encourage it. And I think that's true, unfortunately. How much vacation time were you afforded back then? Well, when I started, I think it was six or seven weeks. That's vacation and education. But I think that it went up when I became a partner, which was pretty early, about a year and a half after joining the practice. It was about 10 or 11 weeks. So there was very generous uh, amount of time. But as generous as it was, I still, when you look at the state, regional, and national activities, pretty much gobbled up that vacation time with radiology service. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I imagine a number of your partners were spending a lot of time out on their boats. Right, exactly. Well, it's a very interesting story about vacation allocation, as I'm sure you're going to want to talk about at some point. I was one of the founders of Educational Symposia, uh, which started as a town gown initiative. And we branched pretty early on into international meetings uh, because none were being held at that time. And we had a meeting in San Moritz. And I think for that week, I had fifth choice on the calendar. And we had four people that said they're going to go to the meeting. I said, guys, if I don't go, there isn't going to be a meeting. But uh, in general, those are the types of vacation discussions that had to be made. But to be fair, the group was pretty good about trading. But again, spending a, a week examining candidates for the board, which, as you know, was is not the most enjoyable of tasks, but one that I think uh, gives us a feeling that we're paying back the specialty. Uh, in order to get that, you would have to trade or I would have to trade uh, with somebody uh, just to have that opportunity if I didn't have vacation uh, priority. Yeah, yeah, understood. Yeah, interesting dynamics of arranging for vacation within a, a group practice. And yes, I, I look upon my days examining in Louisville f- fondly through the retrospectoscope. <laughs> now, Take us back to life as a radiology group president in particular in the mid-1980s and tell us about the job and how much time you dedicated to that role of being group president. Well, I uh, dedicated a lot of time that was not understood or appreciated by those in the practice who had not served in that position. I think the same thing is true up till today, that radiologists in private practice don't understand or appreciate the amount of time that the president spends. I I remember being, we talked about the San Moritz meeting, I remember being in San Moritz on vacation and getting five or six calls a day from the practice manager because, uh, you know, the buck stops 
with the president and decisions have to be made. I thought that the president should be compensated. And there are only two ways you can compensate a a radiologist, and that's time or money. But uh, my partners uh, did not agree. The president who followed me finally uh, had that opportunity, made them understand uh, that you really can't pay back the time expenditure that a private practice president makes in a growing practice. Now, when I joined my group, I was the ninth member. When I left my group, there were, I think, 45 plus men and women radiologists. So we were growing. We were, at that time, one of the biggest practices in the country, certainly in the Southeast. Now, 45 people are chump change. Yeah. Now, you're president for two years. Uh, what were the big issues of the day? You know, what, what sort of stands out as some of the more thorny challenges? Well, I think for many practices, the idea of knowing that your contracts can be taken away from you, I, I think that's something that many members of a practice don't understand, that you have to service contracts appropriately. So all in all, basically, that was, I think, not even developing because the people before me had done that, but perpetuating a a culture of service as the group grew much larger uh, was one issue. Uh, The second issue was that I firmly believed that Radiology, in a sense, if you look at it from your business school perspective, is a declining asset, depreciating asset. Our reimbursement continues to drop and our expenses continue to rise so that if you are going to maintain and grow your financial position and your quality of life, I think you have to diversify your income sources. And I was able to set up a very satisfying, professionally satisfying and financially rewarding uh, expert read medical legal practice. Also set the seeds in place for a purchasing consortium, which after I left the group, the partners were able to sell and do very well. I set up a workman's comp MRI network uh, for my practice. And, you know, these are some of the things that I think add to the stability and tenure uh, of a practice. Yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting perspective on business development to establish new lines of business as opposed to you know, a market competition approach where you're going to go out and just compete to expand the geography and coverage and, and do the same things, but just more broadly at other sites. Was, was that something you considered uh, particularly? And Yeah, I, I think that after I was brought into the group, the group continued. I was the first, I, I think, subspecialist, for want of a better word, but we then brought in people with, I think, 
with the idea that they had strong subspecialty expertise. So service, subspecialty expertise, relationships. We had uh, a guy in our practice, actually we had a couple who were terrific in just interacting with referring physicians, with socializing with referring physicians. And I'll never forget one of the members of our practice who wasn't so skilled said, well, wait a minute, Uh, so-and-so is taking this guy out to to dinner. He's having a dinner on the practice. I should get bonus the amount that he's spending. So wait a minute, he's building the practice. You have to understand that relationships are key. And I think, again, groups today, many groups don't understand how important relationships are in assuring tenure in their practice. And so all of those were challenging. Diversification of income, growth, service. Those were things that I've heard people say, well, we're, we're great radiologists. That should be enough. It's not enough. In fact, the definition of a great radiologist to a hospital administrator is somebody that doesn't give that administrator trouble. If they don't hear at all about from their you know, complaints about their radiologist, that's great. Now, you remained as president for two years. That, that seems like a relatively short term. Was, was the group rotating presidency every two years? And was that the right model from your perspective? No, I think that's a horrible model. And if you rotate your president... Two things happen. One is that you make the business executive the a priori, the the de facto president of the group, because two years is nothing. A hospital administrator knows that if you're going to be gone in two years, he or she can wait you out. So I think it's a very, very bad model. And of course, the third down uh, the third problem with that model is that being president demands certain skill sets, just like being a good cardiovascular radiologist does. And the fact that uh, one is good clinically doesn't necessarily mean that they are good administratively. Now, the reason that I only serve for two years is I was pushing for things that uh, the group didn't necessarily agree with. And radiology practices in private practice are democratic. You know, everyone has their vote. Unlike the more hierarchical academic type of structure, which doesn't mean that the uh, chair of a department doesn't have problems with his or her division heads or faculty members, but at least there is a more hierarchy, uh, you know, uh, a more defined hierarchy in academics. In private practice, my vote is the same as the next person's vote. Should you recall what some of the more controversial initiatives that you sought to pursue that were less popular with the group? Well, again, I think that time 
academic time or administrative time, whatever you want to call it, for the uh, president was uh, very important. And at some point, I felt it was something worth fighting for. It wasn't the first time I fought for something that I thought was right that cost me politically. The same thing happened in the college. So all in all, I think if you believe something is right and you can accomplish that change by stepping aside, then your ethics uh, demand that you step aside. And, you know, I could have kept being president forever, I guess, but certain things needed to be done. And I also knew that the, uh, the individuals that would follow me were well-trained to do a good job in the position. So being a president in my particular situation was a title, uh, but I could exert just as much influence uh, on the board, for example. Yeah, I, I, I understand. I mean, the politics of these roles uh, are unquestionably a delicate balance. And, you know, being reflective about your position and your uh, effectiveness and being able to accomplish what you're striving to accomplish is, is obviously very, very important because you're making some critical decisions when you pursue initiatives that are unpopular and, you know, think down the line to the consequences. You have to be willing to, you know, essentially, you know, fall on that sword as the adage goes. But as I said, you know, it's not the first time, probably won't be the last time. So, So now, now during these same years, you had many, many positions with the Society of Nuclear Medicine, including the Board of Trustees member and Southeast Chapter President. You were president of the American College of Nuclear Medicine, a member of the Board of Directors of the Society of Magnetic Resonance Imaging, president and an active committee member, including 14 years in the executive committee of the Florida Radiological Society, and a whole boatload of roles with the American College of Radiology. Let's hold off on the ACR for a moment. And let me just ask, you know, once again, why such a broad palette? I mean, you've nuclear medicine, MRI, Florida radiology, just huge, huge breadth. Did you at any point feel like you were spreading yourself too thin? Well... I guess the simple answer is no, because if I felt that I was spreading myself too thin, I would not have done that. I think the more embarrassing answer is I think that that breadth of service uh, impacted my family and my wife uh, was a saint, is a saint to have put up with it, but I missed some of the childhood milestones that, in retrospect, I probably uh, would have preferred uh, not to miss. So I think it was my family that was sacrificed uh, to an extent, although it's I've been married now coming up on 52 years, so uh, and I have two terrific children, so all in all, maybe they did better without my constant supervision. Would you advise a young radiologist interested in leadership to pursue a similar path? 
Yeah, I mean, to me, it was extraordinarily satisfying being able to mentor people that followed you, being able to set policies that impacted in a positive way the specialty of radiology in its global form. I think it's been, I've been very fortunate and and certainly have uh, found it professionally satisfying. By the way, I need to make one small correction so that I don't get hammered after if this interview is ever uh, posted, but uh, I was president of the American College of Nuclear Physicians. There is an American College of Nuclear Medicine. At that time, they were two separate organizations. Well, th- thank you for that clarification. That it, it must have been hot to be a nuclear physician. Well, when I started, it was the only, you know, it was the only thing to be uh, if you were somebody who wanted to be on the cutting edge, although, you know, now people jokingly say unclear medicine instead of nuclear medicine. But I think nuclear medicine has has contributed a group of leaders to the college, American College of Radiology, and to radiology in general. So all in all, being able to pal around with those guys and gals was very satisfying. Yeah, now amongst all the efforts that you put forward on behalf of the subspecialty societies as well as the state society, what stands out as your proudest moments? Well, I think uh, the thing that are the things that are most satisfying are the time, which is continuing to the present, that I spend with the Florida Radiological Society because these are the people that are your peers, they're your neighbors, they're your colleagues, and reimbursement and other policies are state-based. So you have to take care of your state first if you want to make sure that uh, radiology survives and thrives. And and by the way, I should clarify that because uh, our mutually good friend, uh, Paul Ellenbogen, always throws back at me a quote that I made in 2010. And by the way, he's, he's right to keep bringing it up. And that is, I said that in 2010, that the future for radiology is bright. The future for radiologists is far less certain. And I think that's even true today. I would emphasize that point by showing a slide of Hugh Laurie, who is the actor who played House. Did you ever see that TV series? I, I did see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I say I would say to the audience, what role does radiology play on house? And of course, everybody would say it doesn't play any role. And I'd say wrong. It play, it's central. Radiology was central to every episode of house. In fact, I can't think I I binge watched all of the episodes again, just to be sure. I can't remember an episode that doesn't have an MRI, a CT, an angiogram, uh, image-guided biopsy, 
Problem is, they're all done by House's fellows. Charlie Williams, uh, again, a close friend and someone I'm sure you know, one time said he wishes that half his partners could do as much as uh, House's uh, fellows because they ran the equipment, they did the studies, they interpreted the studies. So if we want to survive as a specialty of radiologists, we have to make sure that we can do it better than other folks, other specialists who... It's good. It's good. Good to have that, uh, have that fire under us. It pushes us forward. Well, you know, otherwise the uh, neuroscience people will, would take the neuroimaging. In many instances, the cardiologists have taken a lot of our nuclear studies and peripheral angiography. So I think the challenge for all of us is to provide the service, provide the skill that cannot be matched if we want to thrive as the specialty of radiology itself will thrive. Yeah, a driving force with a need to innovate. It's all good. Let's turn to the ACR for a moment. Uh, You've had major roles in the ACR continuously since 1979. That's 42 years. I'd just like to let that sink in a moment, 42 years. That's really remarkable. Um, I'm not going to recite all the roles that you've had, but rather ask you to help us see the high points of those 42 years through your eyes? Well, the high points, of course, were just getting started. I was asked by my chair, Dr. Seaman, if I would be willing to serve on a committee that was comprised at that time of RSNA and ACR members. And it had some strategic emphasis to it. And I was honored to do that. And I thought that all I did was do my job within the time frame allocated to do the job. At the end, a couple of people came over and said, we've got to get you into organized radiology. What would you like to do? Would you like to serve the ACR or the RSNA? So I said, since I was an NIH fellow, each year I had gone to the RSNA meeting. I said, I think I'd like to serve the RSNA. And somebody else said, no, no, you're in private practice. You should serve the college. So, okay. So I was able to sit on a couple of committees, but by being president of the American College of Nuclear Physicians, I was able to get that uh, that organization recognized by the college and awarded a council position. So I was able to serve on the council for the ACNP. And then two years later, I was appointed to the board of chancellors. I was the youngest person, at least Bill Bradley tells me I was the youngest uh, uh, counselor. I don't know if that member of the board of chancellors, I don't know if that's true or not. I think that I was far too young to have served effectively. And as I said before about fighting for things that needed to be done, sacrificing your own advancement, that was my first lesson in it. I, in 82, 
I was approached to serve as secretary treasurer and my group gave permission. And then when the announcement was made, uh, they announced somebody else in that position. And the chair, Jack Harris, who had initially appointed me, said, well, the vice president said that you favored contracts and over his dead body will there be an officer in the college that favored contracts. I said, well, didn't exactly say I favored contracts. What I favored was the fact that about half of our members at that time had contracts with their hospitals, maybe a little less than half. Totally different era. But I said that the college ought to have in-house counsel to deal with issues that arise and impact the membership, hospital contracts being one, but a whole host of other issues uh, for hospital-based radiologists. And while it cost me my ability to be an officer at that time, certainly uh, within a year or two, maybe somebody else was more persuasive than I and more tactful than I and Tom Greeson was hired. So things that needed to be done got done. I just think that I was too inexperienced uh, to be as effective, let's say, as I might have been later in my career. Yeah, talk us through this principle of tact in leadership, uh, particularly Um, in a politicized environment such as you're describing. And, you know, how would you explain it to somebody who's new to leadership or somebody who is struggling to advance and and you suspect it's because they're not as tactful as they should be? Well, I think that batting your head against the wall or against somebody else's head ends up uh, giving you a headache. But does not necessarily, in the most efficient way, get done what needs to be done. I think that just like in every other area, in order to get something done appropriately, you have to do your homework. And I like to think now that within reason, every time I walk into a meeting where there's going to be a vote, I will have known the result of that vote before it happens. In other words, you need to talk to the principals, listen to the principals. If you disagree with these opinion leaders, then you've got to, in a quiet, respectful way, express to them why you feel differently. And I think That is the way that things get done most rapidly. It also gets done most rapidly if you can. The people in the audience are not all in a leadership position. Sometimes you need to be a follower or you need to learn how to lead from behind. And one of the best and most effective ways is to convince somebody that your idea is really their idea and have them advocate for that position. You don't get the credit, but most people that are effective leaders aren't in it for the credit. They're in it to 
get things done in an appropriate manner. Yeah, great, great lessons. So if all of this activity that we've been talking about wasn't enough, you also founded Educational Symposia in 1975, which you mentioned briefly, you served as its president and CEO for 26 years. You described Educational Symposia as a town gown initiative. Help us you know, understand uh, your perspective on that and, and what led you to found it. Well, it's been my belief from the very start that Things work better if you can forge academic, private initiatives of a variety of sources. Uh, And unfortunately, they're few and far between. But we were approached by what was then Squib Diagnostic with a modest grant to run a radio immunoassay meeting. And the reason we were approached, uh, when I say we, talking about the hospitals in Tampa and the medical school, was that it was a very unique environment at that time. Radiology not only controlled the imaging, but they also controlled the imaging aspects of nuclear medicine, but they also controlled the laboratory aspects. In our departments, we were doing Acid drug assays, a variety of different hormonal assays. So we agreed to do that. When I say we, the four hospitals and the medical school. The problem was when it came time to run this meeting, only two of us did the things that we were assigned to do. So When we started the meeting, for example, we were an hour out from starting, we found out that the person who was supposed to bring the audiovisuals hadn't brought the audiovisuals. And there were similar things. So we scurried around, got that taken care of, and the meeting was modestly successful. It covered expenses and I think made a few dollars, not very many dollars for the participating groups. Then, however, the next year we were asked to do the same thing and all of the hospitals dropped out except Ed Eichmann, a wonderful nuclear medicine guy at the medical school, and I said the two of us would do it. Well, I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to work with people who don't want to do it. If if they want to do it, fine, but So the other uh, group said no, so the two of us ran the meeting. What we were fortunate enough to do was invite a lady named Rosalind Yallow to be a keynote speaker. And shortly after the meeting, or and actually before the meeting was held, she was designated as a Nobel laureate. So here we were having with, you know, just a couple of guys who were running a meeting, having a Nobel laureate speak at the meeting. And it became reasonably popular meeting. Then we were offered the opportunity to do it again, which we did. And then we were asked uh, by a couple of the scientists at the meeting, they said, we want to form a clinical radio assay society. Can we take over the meeting? We said, fine, yeah, 
good. It's, you know, we're not in the meeting business. We tried to do something nice for town gown relations, but didn't seem to work out. And we thought we would fold up our tent when uh, one of the imaging companies said, could you run a nuclear medicine meeting? And we ran a very successful nuclear medicine meeting. And it sort of built from there. Our big home run was digital radiology. We had probably in the first couple of meetings over 800 people. And our exhibits weren't quite RSNA caliber, but the RSNA at that time wasn't big in the way of exhibits. So we had a pretty uh, impressive meeting. And then it went from there to CT and CT to MR. So we were always introducing new technology, and that became the focus of the meeting. And then I I just felt after 26 years, enough was enough for me. And while we could have sold it on the open market for far more, we were able to turn it over to staff who had gotten some funding and everybody kept their job and ran the meetings the way we wanted them run. And our philosophy was to have the best faculty that we could get and keep the tuition in the lower quartile. You needed corporate support to do that and a variety of other things, but all in all, it was a formula that worked very well. Yeah, now you've described your role leading educational symposia as being amongst your most rewarding. What what would you point to to help us understand what it was about that, that? Well, what we were able to do because of the philosophy of the best available faculty, unlike, let's say, a medical school meeting, which is obligated to use some, at least, if not most of their own intrinsic faculty, we were able to bring a lot of young people to the podium that had not been given that extensive an opportunity before. The faculty, when I was involved, are now the who's who or the who once were who of radiology. Uh, I mean, Bill Bradley uh, bragged on a couple of occasions that his career was launched by educational symposia. Now, he's a very, he was a very close, our best, he was my best friend. So I told him he was full of horse manure. He would have been fine without that. But he was an early faculty member when MR was in its infancy. Uh, people like Manny Canal, who is, if not the best teacher in the world, is one of them in MR safety and physics, uh, Ruth Ramsey in neuroradiology, Jeff Ross, uh, neuroradiologist, Mike Modic, uh, Mike Bransowatsk. I mean, there are probably uh, 50 to 100 people that now or in the immediate past were chairs of departments who spoke at these meetings and I I remember a long time ago, Diagnostic Imaging, when it was a premier print journal, did a cover story, and I was on the cover. They called me the impresario of 
imaging economics, I think they call her something similar. I said, impresario sounds like an Italian dry cleaner, but they wrote this article about the educational economic meetings that we had been running. And uh, Manny Canal and several other radiologists wrote a letter to the editor saying that that was not the most important thing. The most important thing was the mentoring of young people, giving them an opportunity where they would not have had an opportunity before. I think, again, that's overly generous, but certainly satisfying. Yeah, very, very nice. Clearly, your leadership of educational symposia over all of those years led to a lot of learning by a lot of radiologists uh, who undoubtedly are grateful. In 1994, you left your practice and founded Imaging Consultants, serving as president and CEO from its founding through today. What is Imaging Consultants? Well, Imaging Consultants basically was set up as a company to provide consultative services mainly to radiology groups, also to some hospitals, occasionally to companies. But what had happened was I was one of the few private practitioners on the board of chancellors at the college. And uh, if there were an issue that came up, I would end up being asked to comment and did. And I think still till today, I am asked if a problem is sent to the college and do it as pro bono work, basically. And then we ran these economic symposia, national economic symposia, and practice leaders that came there started talking about their problems and say, could you come to our practice and help us resolve that? So again, fortuitous, satisfying, but fortuitous. Yeah. Now, did you leave your practice entirely to pursue consulting? I left my practice because um, they wanted to do something that I didn't think was right. It had nothing to do with medical skills. It had to do with one of the employees. And I said, if you do this, I will leave. And I discussed it with my wife, and she said, if you don't leave, I would be disappointed. And so they proceeded, thinking nobody would walk away from a big paycheck, and our paycheck as a private group was pretty substantial, and I submitted my resignation. So all in all, I uh, left and never looked back and never regretted it. Now, a part of imaging consultants, let me, was the expert read practice that I had set up, and some of that came with me. So it wasn't that I was out on the street uh, with signs saying, we'll work for food. Uh, I had educational symposia. I had consulting opportunities. I was involved at that time with radiologics. So my plate was pretty full, in addition to the organizational work that I was doing with the college. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like there, there was a bit of a push as well as a pull, and that whatever it was that transpired in the practice was just one piece. Maybe it was just the straw that 
broke the camel's back? Well, I, you know, I guess, again, I want to stress that it had nothing to do with the quality of radiology that uh, they were able to practice, but uh, it was something that uh, I felt better about leaving. I think you have to treat, you have to treat your employees uh, the way you would want to be treated and realize that they have families and they have people relying on them for their livelihood, their ability to earn, uh, and you can't take that lightly. I'm, I'm gathering that uh, this was a circumstance of, uh, of, of employees losing their jobs, and you, you didn't abide by that. I mean, to the extent that it's kind of fundamental as a small business owner that uh, you know your employees are really m- more than employees oftentimes. Right. Appreciate that sensibility. Uh, so upon fon- founding Imaging Consultants, what was the scope of the consulting practice? I mean, it sounds like you kind of you know, described the fact that you had this sort of unique channel or access to leaders around the country because you had been on the board of chancellors of the ACR. People admired your expertise and brought questions to you and such. But, you know, what was sort of the, the natural evolution of the consulting practice uh, and how did the, the kinds of engagements change over time? Well, as I said, it was more than the ACR. In fact, I think this was one opportunity that had a lot less to do with the ACR. Uh, it had more to do with the meetings that uh, educational symposia ran. But, you know, all in all, it started as a combination of visiting practices and um, also doing some medical legal, although early on I turned that over to the medical, to a subgroup at the medical school who've done a very good job. I think uh, that's one area where medical schools can bring extra income if they know how to do it and do it right. So we started in that realm. I did things for some companies. I was, for example, chair of the Teach the Teachers or Train the Trainer program in MRI that GE had. And certainly, and not because of my MR knowledge, I was probably the least knowledgeable MR guy in the room, but because I knew the people through other opportunities and had the ability to tell somebody, you know, enough or sit down, let somebody else talk where the company obviously would be horrified if they broke into somebody's rambling or going off off point. So did some of that for a couple of companies and, and occasionally a hospital would uh, ask to deal with their radiology problem uh, as they would put it, but I would not take that kind of consulting opportunity unless the radiology group invited me as well. So if the hospital wanted to fix something, I wanted to make sure that the radiology group was on board and was amenable to whatever fix was suggested. I mean, if money were the yeah, that's laudable criteria, I would have done a lot better just dealing with hospitals because they're more used to dealing with consultants and paying consultants. 
Yeah. So I'm curious, what commonalities and differences are you seeing with respect to the issues that your clients are facing? You know, when you look across the spectrum of clients that you've had over the years? Well, I would say that 75% of the practices that I visit were outstanding practices, were what one might call platform or trophy practices. They were looking to have someone look over their shoulder and perhaps give them some broad experience as to how other groups were handling it. And 25% were practices in trouble. One would logically think it would be just the opposite. It would be 75% of practices would be in trouble. But unfortunately, a lot of practices that are in trouble tend to be embarrassed about it and not want to get the help that they need. Or they say, well, so-and-so can provide the consulting services at 25% less than you're providing them. So it's radiologists are very peculiar folks. When it comes to paying another radiologist, uh, it becomes uh, more problematic. So groups that need help uh, tend not to get it or not to get it from the individuals that they should get it from. And of those that need help, how would you categorize, you know, sort of the most common types of issues that they're facing? Well, I think obviously losing your contract is the biggest problem that a radiology group can face. And I've been involved in a couple of those types, well, been involved in several of those types of situations, but they usually center around a a few things. The first is hospitals threatening to uh, get rid of the group, and the group will bring me in and we'll meet with administration and we'll devise an appropriate plan to keep the group in place. Uh, The second and more difficult scenario is when the hospital has already sent out an RFP, a request for proposal for radiology services. In other words, they say, your contract is now gone and we'll let you respond, but uh, others can respond as well. And so far, I've been successful in defending groups in that position. It's a very intriguing problem because you have to convince the hospital that the group is not what the hospital thinks they are because the hospital's already made the decision to get rid of them. So they've come to a conclusion. You've got to alter that and reverse that conclusion so that the group can successfully keep their contract. So these are intellectually challenging and satisfying Problems. Of course, the other problem is groups that have interpersonal relationship issues, and they're far more, I mean, most practices throughout the country, private practices, have personality uh, conflicts. And the thing that is more difficult 
for radiology groups is that everybody has the same voice, vote, and income stream. So you're, again, uh, trying to deal with two people who think that their point of view is equally valid. Is there a best practice for group governance from your perspective, best practice model? No, I think there is. I think it's the corporate model where you have the president of the practice, a small but diversely or demographically reflected board of trustees, and then the shareholders. And there should be at least three committees, whether they they should be finance, operations, and marketing new business. Some groups break operations down to quality and safety and personnel, but the three umbrella committees are, I think, fundamental. And if you have a board member that chairs each one of those committees, then you facilitate communication. The shareholders, I believe, should be obligated to serve on one or more committee, and therefore they provide input. The chair of the committee is a member of the board of directors, and that board interacts with the president. I'm interested in your thoughts on the emergence of private equity as a major force toward consolidation of radiology practices. Well, you have a, an excellent uh, group of podcasts. One that I listened to, Jim Thrall said that five years ago, he would have thought corporatization was the biggest problem. Now he thinks that private equity funded groups are. To me, they're the same thing, or at least by common usage, they are the same. And I think that they could have a profound impact on the practice, particularly on young people, because the although all of the entities are different, the common thread is they exchange an upfront check, amount of money, or check and stock uh, for cash flow. So let's say they say to you, Jeff, you're the president of uh, of XYZ Radiology Group. We're going to give you $5 million per shareholder. In return, you're going to drop your compensation package by $250,000. Well, that's all well and good for the shareholders, perhaps, and I'm not saying it is well and good, but they're getting a lot of upfront money. But for young people, all they see is no upfront money, but a compensation ceiling that has been substantially lowered. So that's one problem that I see with VC-funded entities. The second problem is I think it's going to have a profound impact on the college right now, and other organizations. Right now, the college, I don't know, is happy, but certainly is more than willing to accept these overtures from the companies who will say, well, let's work together. Let's share data. Let's do this. And then we'll force all of our radiologists to be members 
So let's say there are 2,000 members of this entity. That's $2 million in extra dues money that suddenly the college can realize. But I think uh, once a tipping point, if a tipping point is ever reached, these companies will be able to hire people with no upfront money because it's the norm, not the exception. Emergency room physicians went through this already. So we have a template and they won't need the college or at least the pillars of the college will be dramatically altered. Uh, Those are stark predictions. Do you see any positives? Well, it's not worked before, and there's no reason to think it's going to work now. I mean, the business school spiel of medicine is a fragmented specialty, and it's very inefficient. That rings true with potential investors, and it's I guess, true, true, but unrelated to their situation because none of these companies have integrated radiology. I mean, if you really want to integrate medicine, you have Kaiser as a model, you have Geisinger as a model, you have perhaps to a lesser extent the Mayo and the Cleveland Clinic as models, but you need to control the patient the provider, the hospital, and the insurance instrument. Then you're providing some efficiency. But to just buy a bunch of groups is is, uh, ludicrous. And some of these entities have not been able to survive under the crushing amount of debt that they've incurred. And quite frankly, I don't see how any of them will survive in the long haul. Now, they could do a heck of a lot of damage before the market punishes them. But, you know, this is one man's opinion. It's very, it's interesting, a a faculty member at the uh, Practice Leaders Forum, the ACR RBMA meeting, uh, said, how can you fault a person for accepting a five- $4 million, $5 million check. And I said, I'm not in a position to fault anybody. I just believe that there will be a negative impact on the specialty and a very negative impact for young radiologists. And indeed, uh, Daniel Ortiz and a couple of others did a survey of of the resident and fellow section and the young physician section. And I think it was 83% of them had very negative views of corporatization. Yeah. Switch gears. Um, How do you unwind? Do you have any hobbies or activities that you pursue outside of work that re-energize you? I have too many outside activities. I am a poor golfer, but a golfer nonetheless which is an interesting sport in and of itself. Somebody far wiser than I said, you can really tell the character of somebody by playing golf with them because it's a self-policing type of situation. I play uh, duplicate bridge, although I have not done that in the last year because I don't like online bridge, but I played a fair amount of duplicate bridge. I love sports, particularly professional football and uh, ice hockey, to watch. 
and I am addicted to a tad more television than I should be. So all in all, I have a lot of things going. And I read probably a book every week and a half, uh, but again, escape stuff. Oh, that's great. What are you watching these days? Well, I watch the various, uh, well, now Law & Order, there's only one that survived, uh, that's SVU, but now they're bringing back a character from the past, so there'll be a spinoff. I watch uh, the Chicago Med Law and PD, um, watch uh, Bull, have you ever watched Bull? Watch NCIS. Uh, again, as I said, too many things. <laughs> too many choices. So looking ahead, what excites you the most about radiology? The thing that excites me about radiology is what excited me from the moment I decided to become one, and that is the technology is always evolving. It's changing. New things are coming that probably that we haven't even thought about. How to effectively harness AI to make it best for the patient, best for the department, best for the radiologist. All of these things, the caliber of individual going into radiology is impressive. Although to me, I think that that could take a hit down the road if compensation were dramatically lowered. I, I am bothered by what I call academic malaise about corporatization because people, well, it's not our problem. But it is your problem because you train people and you want the highest quality of candidate. And I think that academia needs to voice its opinion, no matter what that opinion is. But I'm very excited about radiology. I would urge anybody uh, to go into radiology. And I don't think we're going to be replaced in the short or in immediate term. Well, Larry Muroff, it has been a pleasure to explore your rich and illustrious career with you. You've contributed so much to our field and are continuing to do so today in very unique ways. I want to thank you for joining us today. As we close this episode, I want to once again thank our newest sponsor, the Eisenberg School of Management Graduate Programs at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Eisenberg Graduate Business Programs prepare you to advance your career on your terms, and their online and on-campus degrees are tailored to your schedule and timetable. Learn more at eisenberg.umass.edu slash follow your drive. Please join me next month when I speak with Amy Patel, Medical Director for Women's Imaging at Liberty Hospital in Liberty, Missouri. Partner of Alliance Radiology, Assistant Professor of Radiology at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and Chair of the Young and Early Career Professional Section of the American College of Radiology. Since finishing a post-residency fellowship in breast imaging less than four years ago, Dr. Patel has committed herself to numerous leadership roles within the University of Missouri, the Kansas City Chapter of the American Cancer Society, the Missouri Radiological Society, the American College of Radiology, the American Association of Women Radiologists, and the Society of Breast Imaging. 
A tireless advocate for women's health, Dr. Patel successfully partnered with a Missouri state senator to pass legislation guaranteeing breast cancer screening coverage for women 25 years and older who are at high risk. When the WWE, or World Wrestling Entertainment, teamed up with Susan G. Komen to celebrate Champions of Hope, patients, doctors, and breast cancer advocates who have gone above and beyond in the search for a cure, Dr. Patel was named a top five finalist. A proud radvocate and trailblazing leader, Dr. Patel has set an inspiring example for how radiologists just a few years removed from their training can make a huge impact in advancing healthcare, both locally and nationally. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast, to Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead. <laughs>